book of Revelation, and uh, chapter 10. And we're going to read chapter 10 into chapter 11 to verse 6. And then we're going to finish off 11 next week, um, at least down to verse 14. Um, So let's turn to Revelation chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like, the roar, like a roaring lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I, saw about, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea And on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from the heaven spoke to me again saying go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land so I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll and he said to me take and eat it will make your stomach bitter but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey and I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations." They will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. and They will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foe. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood, to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Well, uh, this morning we are going to uh, consider these verses together. And uh, uh, as I said, we're going to... uh, Split up I, I, in my in the bulletin. There, our, our text um, is the the um, Revelation uh, ten and eleven. But we're going to look just part way into eleven. And um, last time we were uh, 
together, we looked at chapter 9. And we saw how in the... We're, we're looking, just broadly speaking, at the time between Jesus' first and second coming and all the things that will fall upon the earth and, and the challenges that the church will face in that time. And we saw the, the, uh, the scourge of the locusts and the, uh, and the horses that came as, as they were unleashed by God. And uh, we saw the different influences upon the earth. And as they, as they uh, did their work, they spewed out from the, 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 the abyss, the pit, fire and smoke and sulfur. And we saw that in keeping with John's idea of the, uh, the, uh, the false prophets that go out into the world, that this is how the devil typically works. By uh, taking it right back to the book of Genesis where uh, uh, the devil deceived the man and the woman, distorted the word of God. And how that has played itself out time and time again down through the centuries. And how sometimes we're, we're tempted to look at um, the devil working in other ways uh, apart from his distorting of the word. But his, the main way in which he seeks to destroy and to distort is by uh, presenting a false picture. Uh, this morning we're going to look at chapter 10 and see here that just as there was in chapter 7, a pause between the 6th and the 7th seal, so God is uh, initiating a pause here between the 6th and 7th trumpets here in chapter uh, uh, chapters 10 and 11. Just as the focus was on the church there, the focus is on the church here. Uh, we saw in chapter 7, this, the, the protection, the sealing of the 144,000, and then that great multitude which no man could number. And that was a focus on God's people. Here, as again, there is this interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpets. You notice we don't get to the seventh trumpet until 11.15. And... Uh, it, so in the meantime, there is this delay between the 6th and 7th trumpet. And before that is sounded, God again takes us and shows us something of the work of the church. And we want to get into that and just see it straight off. So again, there is a focus on the church and its progress. The way in which it moves forward and sometimes backward over the course of these 2,000 years. He says there at the beginning, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over its head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillar of fire. Now, we've been trying to discover how do we find our way through the book of Revelation without uh, resorting to all sorts of fanciful interpretations. The one thing that you have to do when it comes to any part of the Bible is see the Bible in light of what the rest of the Bible says about that theme. Rather than taking up the latest book of prophecy or the 
Time magazine or The Guardian or see what's going on in the Middle East and then try to jam all of that in to say, well, this is obviously what this means. You have to go and do as John himself is doing, seeing how all of these things are fulfilled. Now, one of the keys you'll find there in verse 7, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Now, kind of hold on to that because what the prophets did was they put images in place. I mean, you go back to Zechariah, you go back to some of these places, and you say, that is a very strange... How do we understand that? Well, John goes back and he takes all of that apparatus and he says, now this is how we are to interpret the end times. This is how we are to interpret all of these symbols. Does that mean we know exactly how these things fit together like a perfect puzzle? Absolutely not. And if you meet somebody who says, I've got the book of Revelation figured out, you run from them as fast as you possibly can. Because that's not the case. Uh, I have been scouring commentaries uh, for the last number of months, looking at the various passages, and you will find commentators struggling with what certain things mean. But where you get unanimity among the, the, the good commentators is saying, this is basically what this chapter is saying. But if you say... We know exactly the correspondence from this to this. I, you wouldn't say that about any part of the Word of God uh, where, where people have that say, I know exactly what Jesus meant here in every circumstance. Or I know exactly what these images mean in every circumstance. Sometimes we don't. And the humble thing is to kind of stand back from it and say, okay, what are the things that we do know or what are the things that we can be, where we can see the connections between the prophets and, uh, and John? And then begin to draw our conclusions from that as to what we feel that, where this passage is going. Now, the, 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 that is true for us when we look at this mighty angel. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down. Now again, the, the language suggests a divine character. Others say it's not a divine character, but it's simply another angel who bears the, the images and the regalia of, of divinity or the authority of divinity. Now again, can we say 100%, is this, Jesus or, is this angel Jesus or is it just another heavenly angel invested with authority that reflects that of God. The bigger question is, the, 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 the point to be made here, is the images that the angel is reflecting. We don't have to come down and say definitively, in, as a matter of how we're going to interpret the whole passage, as to whether this is just an angel, or is it Jesus himself. Whatever, whatever interpretation you take on that doesn't take away from the ultimate meaning of the passage. The meaning, the focus is on the images of the rainbow and the pillars, the legs like pillar of fire and his face like the sun. These are the things that he, he's wanting us to focus on. The rainbow, obviously, 
if you are see, interpreting the Bible in terms of the Bible, you would see the rainbow as the rainbow given at the time after the flood, during the time of Noah. Speaking of God's faithfulness, that uh, God would never destroy the earth again with a flood. That, uh, that through seed time and harvest, God would be faithful in His covenant. And this, is, this rainbow would have then spoken to the church that John is writing to, to say, hey, that was a powerful image. That has proven a powerful image for God's Old Testament people. It should prove a powerful image to us. The same is true of God's presence. And there you see the, the radiance. Uh, uh, his face was like the sun and his legs like pillar of fire. Now uh, some commentators like Joel Beakey uh, would say, yes, that is definitely Jesus. Others would say that it, it, it is not. And so here you get the sense that, well, perhaps this is Jesus as an angelic figure coming through here. But again, these ideas of pillars suggest to us God's presence with his people when they came out of Egypt. Pillar of smoke by day, pillar of fire by night. God was present with his people. And so that what God did for Noah and Israel by saving them from their enemies and bringing them into a new land or into a new creation, he is now going to do again. See, that's how I think we need to approach these chapters. To say, what have these images meant to us in the past? And what then is John conveying through this image now in the present? He had a little scroll open in his hand, and we're going to see that in a moment. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Having your foot on something suggests dominion. When a king overcame another king in the Old Testament, they put his, the, 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 his foot on his neck to, sell, to, to show that he was victorious, to show that he had dominion over that conquering king. And here, this angel has his, his feet on the land and on the sea, showing a universal dominion. And that's what we talk about, don't we? From sea to sea. We talk about whether it's on land or sea. That's a universal expression, and it comes from the Bible. And so it's suggesting to us that this figure before John is representing someone who is expressing universal authority. And so that is definitely true of the Lord Jesus, where he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So you see that that language, heaven and earth, land and sea, that it, it suggests to us a dominion. It also suggests to us a, a universal application that this message is for not only one group of people, but it's for all people everywhere. And just as land and sea takes in the whole earth, God is concerned most importantly with people themselves. And so he goes on. He says, and he called with a loud voice, like a, a, a roaring, 
a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. This is another one of those uh, uh, passages that the commentators will look at and scratch their heads. Why would, why would seven thunders sound? And John is just about to write it down and not, we're not told about what it is. Well, we're often faced with this mystery in the Bible. The mystery of the things that are hidden from us that may or may not at some future point be revealed. Uh, a number of weeks ago, uh, after uh, Fiona, the hurricane hit, uh, we, I, I preached on that verse from Deuteronomy. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. In other words, God may be saying there are secret things at play here which we will know at some future point. And that He is su perhaps suggesting to John by actually having these thunders come out that yes, it will be revealed at some point, but for now, they will be concealed. Jesus said as much to His own disciples. There's much I want to say to you, but you cannot hear it right now. Later on, you will. But for now, He is withholding that from us. Paul, when he was given that thorn in the flesh, was taken up into the throne room of heaven and allowed to see things that it's not lawful for any man to speak about. And so Paul didn't write about those things, but he, he experienced them. So for a season, they're hidden from us. But at some point, they may be revealed. But, nevertheless, there are things that are revealed. Let's see what he goes on to say. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his hand, right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. In other words, while the sound of the thunders was hidden and that message is hidden, yet there, there is no longer a delay in what is to come. That there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call, uh, in the day of the trumpet call be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servant the prophet. So something is hidden and something is revealed. The secret things belong to God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. So there is a time of unveiling. This opened scroll is put into the hand of John. We'll see that down in verse 9. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. But here, he's announcing that the purposes and plans of God are now about to be unveiled. Remember how I said that, that uh, the themes of the Gospel are cyclical through the book of Revelation, where you have something introduced and then reintroduced and reintroduced again. And so here, we have this proclamation. The time has come that the mystery of God is revealed. The question then happens, or comes to us, 
where do we find the word mystery? Do we go outside the Bible to try to figure out what that means? Do we go to the news outlets to find out what that means? Do we come to some kind of secret knowledge of what that mystery is? <laughs> no. We let the Bible interpret the Bible. And the Bible does talk about the mystery of God that had been revealed, that had been hidden from ages past, but that is now revealed through the coming of Jesus, which the prophets and, uh, had foretold and the law had foretold. The mystery. It was there, but it was hidden from people's eyes. God promised Abraham that in him all the nations would be blessed. How was that going to come about? How was that going to take place? Paul says in Ephesians 1, listen to the words here. He talks about the mystery of God's will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as the plan for the fullness of time. Does that echo with what we're seeing here in Revelation? The plan for the ages? The great mystery of God that's now being revealed through John and through the church? Of course it is. This is, what we're, this is what's now being revealed. Which He set forth in Christ. Who is the centerpiece of Revelation? It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of the Lamb. It's the revelation of what God is going to do by bringing people in through the blood of the Lamb and judging nations by the Lamb who are hiding from His judgment. So you see what, what, how we figure out then what the idea of what mystery means there and what John is now to go and proclaim. To unite, he continues to say, all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. It's the mystery of the Gospel. It's that which we could never have figured out on our own apart from God revealing it to us. That is, that's it. Who would ever have thought that God in redeeming His church would have sent His own Son into the world? That's what we'll spend the next month or so thinking about and celebrating the, 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 the amazement of Christmas. For unto us a child is born and a son is given who shall be called the mighty God. Would any angel have suggested that to God as a plan? What about if you took on human form, were born in a mangy, uh, manger, and, and, uh, and then was crucified on the cross, uh, spit upon and rejected, and, and then who would ever have dreamt up such a thing? That's the mystery. And then to bring all of creation, man and beast and land and sea and the cosmos, back together again through the work of Jesus Christ. That's the mystery. It's something we would never ever ourselves have dreamed up, but now is uh, uh, made known. But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the servant, seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. That word sounded there is the Greek, same Greek word for evangelize, which is in the Greek euangelion. The word eu as in eulogy, which means good, means good news, to speak good news. 
And so in that context, we see what is being sounded out here. It's the good news of the Gospel that's now being proclaimed and announced. And John is representative of the church in that way. It's not just to John. It's not just to one person that this scroll is put into the hands of. I mean, symbolically, here it is. But that represents all of God's people down through the ages. And so John, though he is unique here, he's an example of the church's witness. In fact, even he in his own person, he was suffering for the witness of the Gospel in the Isle of Patmos, representing what's going on in the world today. On Friday night, we gathered for what? The, a fundraiser for the voice of the witnesses. The word martyr means witness. You're witnessing. And in those days, you witnessed with your, with your life, and today, you witness with your life. So it, be, it comes home to us, you see, in a very real way, that the witness is, as John was witnessing, so that witness is taken up by all God's people, even at cost sometimes to their life. Then, the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. A very strange image again, but it's something that goes back into the Old Testament. Where uh, the, the prophet Jeremiah, for example, was told to do the exact same thing. To take the scroll and eat it. And it was sweet and bitter at the same time. Sweet to the taste, bitter in the stomach. Now, why does he use this image of food? The Bible is for one thing, something that we are to nourish ourselves on. It is the bread of life. Uh, we, we talk about going to certain churches so, so that we might be fed the Word of God. Right? We take the Word, we eat it, we nourish it. it. We nourish ourselves with it. And just as we make a point of eating our breakfast or our meals through the day, so the Word acts in that same way that we're, we're, uh, we're doing ourselves harm if we're not into the Word of God if we're not nourishing our souls on it. The psalmist said that the, your word is like it's sweeter than honey to the taste. That's how people understand God's word. Because it brings with it eternal life. It brings with it the unveiling of how do we get right with God? How does a wretched sinner like me whose heart is always turning, betraying me and turning me aside into evil things, how do I get right with a holy God? And I go to the Word, and I read, God made Him guilty for all that I did. 
And that becomes sweet to me. It's like honey to me. I can't get enough of it. It nourishes, it, it nourishes me. It fills me. It does all of these things. But, and yet at the same time, it has a different effect as well. Because in the rejection of that Word comes judgment with it. Judgment comes upon those who reject the Word of God. It can also be very, a very painful experience for people to have such good news and see it being rejected in the world. People in our families, our neighbors or our friends or people we go to university with who we want to, to reach with the Gospel, that they would take it but it becomes to them hateful. The very message is hateful. That's how Jeremiah and Isaiah were when they took the Word of God to their own people. Go with the good news, but you will go and they won't listen. They will hate you and they will put you in cisterns and they will do all sorts of evil things against you. So there's this mix of the sweet and the bitter. And so we talk about something that's bittersweet, right? The game the other night was bittersweet. We won, this, we won the game, but the goalie broke his leg. It was a bittersweet uh, victory. And, and, and that is the truth when it comes to what John is to give here because we ourselves know what it's like. Jesus came into Jerusalem on a, on a donkey to shouts of praise. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. There was good news. There was joy that the King was coming. There was the sweetness of it. But when Jesus saw the implications of Jerusalem rejecting it, he was reduced to tears and weeping. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who would stone the prophets and kill those who were sent to you, how I would have gathered you as a, a mother gathers her chicks under her wing. If you this day had known the things that belong to your peace, if you would know the sweetness of God's grace and His love and His forgiveness, you see, it was sweet to Jesus. It was sweet to all who knew of it. But He knew it would come across as bitter to those who would reject it. And so for John, there's this bittersweet experience of knowing the Gospel, but knowing that that same Word does not return to the Lord void. It will accomplish what it was set out to do. It will save some and harden others. It will melt some and it will enrage others. How are you responding to the Word then today? How are you taking in the Word of God? Is it sweet to you? Do you desire it in the morning? Can you go through day after day with or without it? What is your answer to those questions? What does the Word mean to you? Is Jesus sweet to you? Is the Gospel that which nourishes your soul? Do you find yourself when you're going through 
the most difficult times of your life, whether they're brought on by something else or whether you bring them on yourself, that the Gospel stands you up on your feet again and helps you to move forward. You're able to say, it's sweet to me. It's a strength to me. It's a blessing to me. It's not a bitterness. It's not something I run from and hate. And so John, in, in taking up the Word and eating it and experiencing those two things, is reflecting in these images the double-edged sword of the Gospel. That it will cut to judgment, it will cut to blessing at the same time. Then I was given a measuring rod like the staff, and I was told to rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. This is chapter 11. But do not measure the cord outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to the two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. We saw with the sealing of the people of God back in chapter 7 that God knew exactly those who are His. We saw that they, it was a, a number that had dimensions, 12 by 12 by 1,000. It was a perfect number. It was God's view of the church itself. And here, he is, John is asked to take this measuring rod like a staff and go and measure the temple of God. Again, we are to under, try to understand, well, what does he mean by all this talk of measuring rods and temples? Well, the obvious place you go to, because they didn't have Time magazine in the first century, they had the Bible in the first century. And they had copious amounts of the Bible in the first century. And it was full of images like measuring rods and temples and so on. So the natural place to figure out what these things meant was to go back there. And so you go back to a place like Zechariah chapter 2. And he is measuring Jerusalem. He's told to measure Jerusalem. Ezekiel is told to do the same in chapter 40. Now again, there is a movement afoot today. Because they will go back into Zechariah and Ezekiel and take those prophecies literally. By that I mean they think that in the end times that there's going to be yet another temple built and that there is a fundraiser afoot as we speak in North America and around the world raising money for this temple that will be built where sacrifices will be offered. And they say, well, it won't be, they won't be offered for atonement, but as a, a picture of the Gospel. And so they take Ezekiel literally to say, look, God's putting these dimensions in His Word because there is going to be another physical temple built. No, again, that is a wrong way of approaching the Word of God. Because when you come into the New Testament, the language of temple is no longer applied to a building. Jesus said, you will no longer worship the Father in this place, on Mount Gerizim, or in Jerusalem where the temple is. But those who worship God will worship Him in spirit and in truth all over the world. You won't need a physical temple. Because we are the temple of God. Listen to what Peter says. You also, that's you believers who are suffering, as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And so this picture, again, 
suggests to us that God knows His people. That God is the builder of His temple. God knows the exact dimensions. And to be in that temple is a safe place to be. It's a wonderful place to be. It's where we're meant to be. Because we now know why we live. We live to praise the God who loved us and gave Himself for us, who died on the cross for us. And to be in that temple is to be in the most wonderful of places. Paul says, the foundation of God stands sure. Having this seal, the Lord knows them that are His. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Again, this is a, a kind of a mystifying verse. And again, commentators are divided on it. Some believe that the outer court there, because in the te- Old Testament temple, the outer court was the court of the Gentiles. And that the inner court was the court de- uh, given over to God's people specifically. Some see here a difference between those who are truly Christians and those who are just professing Christians. Uh, it's difficult to say but there is a time of of testing that comes upon them for a certain time holy city uh, will be trampled for 42 months now if you go back to the children of israel as they wandered in the wilderness there was the first two years they rebelled against god and god said that they would wander for another 40 years which adds up to 42 years. And here he's given the time frame of 42 months. And so this, this language of 42 and 1,260 days and three and a half years and so on, these are words that describe not an exact period of time to the day, but a period of testing, a period of trial and testing that is put upon the church. These two, uh, verse 3, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Who are these witnesses then? We are again taken back to uh, Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6. Uh, He says there, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top uh, uh, stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. And in these passages, he talks about the... um, the witnesses of the lampstand and the, uh, the source where the oil, the reservoir for where the oil comes forth. And so here he talks about these are the two olive trees, verse 4, 
and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. And in through those lampstands and those olive trees is flowing the sap of God, the oil of God, which represents the Holy Spirit. The witnesses then become those who are filled with the Spirit. Jesus says to his disciples, wait in Jerusalem until you are endowed with power from on high. Then you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They were to take the gospel out through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we see at the end of verse 11 in the last chapter, you must again prophesy about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So just as, remember back to chapter 7, the 144,000, who did they represent? They represented the church. Was it an exact number of 144,000? Not necessarily. Because later on we see a, a number which no man can number. The same is true when it comes to these witnesses. They are pictured in this way because they are Spirit-filled. They are representing the church as a whole, just as John represented the church as a whole in taking the great commission of the mystery of God to the nations. But how are they going to do that? Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. They will be filled with God's Spirit as they go out and prophesy to the nations about the Gospel. There will be ups and downs, and we'll see that next week as the the, the witnesses are attacked. And so you see this progress and regress, the ups and downs of church history, of Gospel history. But nevertheless, these two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord uh, 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 these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands which take us back to uh, uh, the, the, the book of Zechariah not by might not by power but by my spirit says the Lord we find that when Jesus sent out his disciples, he sent them two by two. He sent them one with another to go out and take the gospel. They were, each group of them were to represent the church, taking out the good news of the gospel. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the gospel. So this is what these two witnesses represent here. We are able to see as we draw upon the imagery back in Zechariah of the lampstands and the, uh, uh, the olive trees, that God was going to, in the New Testament age, empower His church with the Holy Spirit. And through that, they were going to fulfill the Great Commission. It wouldn't be easy. There would be progress and regress But for the time being, we see the power that is given. Verse 5, And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. Again, how do we understand that? Well, where have we seen it before? We've seen it with Elijah's uh, contest on Mount Carmel. As fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifice. And then the prophets of Baal are destroyed. In other words, God's people are 
through their prayers and through the preaching of the word, vindicating God's word. They're proclaiming the gospel. And as that goes out, lives, communities, nations are changed. If anyone, he said, would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. We are meant in understanding that passage to bring Elijah and Moses into the picture to say, look at how God stood with these men for the good of His people in those days. Through these witnesses, through the prayers of God's people, just as we're called to pray for the martyrs, called to pray for evangelists, called to pray for missionaries, called to pray for suffering believers all over the world, we move heaven and earth. That's the idea. I don't have the ability to shut up the sky and the, and the earth and call fire from heaven. But I do have, we do have, as priests and kings unto God who minister before Him night and day, we have the privilege and the responsibility to call to God as Elijah did on Mount Carmel. And say, God, vindicate Your name. Show Your glory. Lord, bring this monster of a president or a monster of a prime minister or a monster of a world leader to their knees and show them what they really are. That these people would no longer be persecuted and killed and, and so on. And we do that with the Spirit of God in us, praying according to His Word. You see, again, Puts you and I in the picture. I don't want you to just see this as a mysterious unfolding of a bunch of random things that we can't understand. No, it takes disabled church and puts us right in the mix of world history and says your prayers are important. Your witness is important. The Word of God is powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword which brings judgment and blessing. And how that falls is not up to you, and it's not up to me, but it's up to God, and it's up to us to simply be faithful to it. And so this language is elevated language to, again, give us a window into the spiritual. What goes on when we pray? What happens when men and women and boys and girls fall on their knees and call out to God who have the Spirit of God in them earnestly pleading with God. It's this. We realize that the hour has come, the time has come. We now speak of the good news of the Gospel. We pray it into... We, that it that might be manifest in our world. However God would do that just as Moses called out to God, just as Elijah called out to God, John is saying, so God's people. Not some witness 
or two witnesses who will come at some point in 2025 in the streets of Jerusalem somewhere. And they, no, it's God's people who are the witnesses who will struggle and yet will overcome by the power of His might. That's you and I, and we have got a great gospel to believe and to proclaim. That's why the church will go through all that it goes through, because we have a wonderful message of salvation for the world. And the world that refuses, it will be the fragrance of death. It will be a a, a message of judgment. But nevertheless, we move forward by His Spirit and by His grace to fulfill what we have seen in these two chapters. Let's pray.